Everyone, you are listening to the podcast in conversation with IPR and Competition Law, India's first exclusive podcast on competition law, widely listened in forty-seven countries. Now we are headquartered in London, and we are expanding to other territories so that we are able to su- succeed in our mission of comparative competition law. We invite competition lawyers, academicians, professionals, and competition authorities on our podcast to discuss the law trends and jurisprudence. I am Aditya Trivedi, founder and head of the competition team of the podcast and your host. Hello everyone, I am Rishika Jain, senior fellow of the podcast. Let's welcome our esteemed guest for today's episode, Mr. Jean Burris. Welcome sir. Sir thank is the founder you. Happy to be here. I'm oh, sorry. Yes, yes. Thank you sir. Sir is the founder of Burris Competition Strategies. He was also the director of Spotify's global competition policy. Mr. Burris is highly regarded in the USA as one of the most seasoned competition law experts. He has extensively been involved in issues related to digital platforms. He also has worked as an assistant general counsel for Microsoft for 15 years and was involved in assisting the company with various competition. With that, we welcome you, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, very uh, honored to be uh, on your on your podcast today, and happy to happy to answer any questions and engage in what I think will be an interesting conversation. Thank you, sir. Right. Thank you so much, sir, for accepting our invite and starting the conversation. We see in the U.S. there's a push for various bills, various legislations for regulation of digital markets. and just updating about india we also have a digital competition act in in its role like we are trying to pass it we are trying to first draft it a committee is there in us there are various bills which are there for regulation of digital markets notably the american innovation and choice online act how do you see the current trends of legislation these kinds of legislation in the us Uh yeah thanks thanks for asking about that. I I think at this stage there was a lot of progress made over the last I would say 2 years on on digital platform related legislation in the US. Broad bipartisan support and agreement uh that there are issues in the market that need to be fixed and that maybe traditional competition law isn't up to the up to the task in these digital markets. So we, uh, a lot of progress was made with respect in particular to the American Choice and Innovation Online Act that you cited as well as the Open App Markets Act which takes on a little more specifically the uh the mobile app ecosystems and app store situation both of them passed out of uh passed out of committee in the US Senate uh in with with broad support bipartisan support uh the notably the uh open app markets act passed with a 20 to 2 vote out of the out of the senate judiciary committee which is pretty significant for a piece of substantive legislation however i think uh the us the us process for getting substantive laws like this passed is fraught and difficult and lots of barriers can present themselves what was i think what was close to happening last year with at least respect to the open app markets act was it 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 came very close to being uh attached to some of the year end funding le- government funding legislation at the last minute was not included i think there's 
there remains bipartisan support for these things, but it's a difficult, it's a, the legislative process in the U.S. is just difficult. But um, I think there's hope that we will see something happen. I think if we were uh, betting on which bill would be more likely to pass, it's probably the Open App Markets Act, uh, given it's brought it a little bit broader support and a little bit narrower opposition. Uh, but we will see. The, the, I, it's a it's the case, I think, that the U.S. legislative process is just a lot more difficult, perhaps, than some other places. And, you know, there's a lot of veto power that very small minorities can exercise over some of this. So it's it's a difficult it's a difficult process. I think it's a I think it's quite frankly a danger for the United States and an opportunity for other places in the world like India, like Europe, like the UK that the U.S. I think has forgotten to some degree the lessons they should have learned from the late 1990s and early 2000s when, you know, if you think back historically, at that point it was Silicon Valley and in particular companies like Apple and Google that were uh, pushing the U.S. government to take action against the then gatekeeper company Microsoft because if you think back, people... If people wanted to access the internet, 95% of them had to do it on a Microsoft Windows computer. And the U.S. actually took the lead at that time in taking action and constraining those that company, which led, I think, to the to the success certainly and arguably the existence of companies like Apple and Google. Uh, they now find themselves in a similar gatekeeper position over access to the internet, and. Um, so are you know are now now opposing that kind of legislation, but the U.S. is to some degree falling down on the job a little bit, where, whereas other com- other countries and jurisdictions like India, like the like the European Union, and like the U.K. may take the lead on regulating this next generation of digital platforms, and therefore becoming the place where new innovative companies want to go do business and build their businesses on those mobile platforms where the U.S. will be a lot less inviting. So, but, but I, I think, you know, the, the prospects are, I would say, think about the Open App Markets Act as the more likely of the two, two big bills that would, that would get done, but there is broad, broad bipartisan support for both of them. So. Uh, thank you for your insights, sir. I agree that with the growing trends and what we have seen after the lockdown, the need and the growth of digital markets and digital platform is enormous. And the regulatory law and the competition authority is the time of the hour. I hope that what you said about India is correct and India, India will progress in this. So moving on to the next question, we want to know that uh, there are various terms such as coveted platforms to self-referencing. So how do these terms differ from similar terminologies which have been deployed in the Digital Markets Act, which uses the term gatekeeper? Yeah, I think I think the intent behind all of these terms are is similar, and that is they all are aiming to regulate the conduct of companies that truly hold a 
in the Europe. You'd call it a gatekeeping, uh, a gatekeeping position in, you know, you might call it a dominant position. You might call it a monopoly position, but all of, I think all of those terms are, are aimed at making sure that when this kind of regulation is passed, it is, it is restricting the behavior of companies that have positioned themselves or have managed to succeed to put themselves in a position that they truly do, uh, stand between, you know, app developers and innovative technology companies and their customers, rather than say constraining the constraining the conduct of smaller companies or companies that don't really hold that market power position. So while the the, the terms are a little different, covered platform versus a gatekeeper or versus a SMS company in the UK. They all are aimed. They all are aimed at making sure that the companies that ultimately are regulated have their conduct regulated by this legislation are the ones that truly hold this market power position and and hold the keys to a to a uh, a platform that is essential to uh, innovation for other companies rather than rather than constraining companies that, that quite frankly don't need to be constrained. I mean that's a that's a common you know thing under traditional competition law where unilateral conduct, the same conduct that's engaged in by a monopolist could be illegal while when engaged in by a company that doesn't have any particular uh, degree of market power is just fine. It's the same kind of concept here is that it's meant to, it's meant to represent, it's meant to uh, constrain those, those truly dominant companies. And then with respect to the question about uh, self-preferencing, I think that that's really a concept I think that also spans all of this all of this legislation in that it's meant to address the situation where where a platform owner also chooses to compete with the companies that are participating on the, on their platform. So a great example for is Apple. Uh, uh, owns that owns that iPhone platform, which is of critical importance to developers around the world. But they also choose to compete uh, with a number of their own apps. A, a great one is a great example, you know, given my background in Spotify, Spotify's biggest single competitor is Apple Music. And that obviously presents a, a unique set of problems when the platform on which they depend for the majority of their revenue, they also find themselves in direct competition with that platform owning company. And of course, there are many ways that that platform owning company can make sure that its app has advantages uh, over, over the competition. All of this legislation is designed to address that situation so that Apple isn't prohibited from competing but when they do choose to compete, that they're, it's done on a level playing field and that everyone else that's on their platform kind of has an equal shot and equal chance of success. Right, sir. Thank you so much for explaining to us about self-preferencing and such conduct are against the principles of level playing field and objectives of competition law, as we say generally. And uh, coming to it, I would say moving further, data portability network effects and big data these things are come into place and these things are very important with respect to global hot topics in antitrust 
data portability has emerged as one of the big issues how do you see data portability as an instrument in promoting the benefit of the users yeah so it's i mean it really data portability can be of critical importance uh for for allowing users to kind of change their mind with respect to what platforms or apps that they might decide to use in any particular point in time rather than rather than feeling like they are locked into something so you know take you know examples of that uh are all over the place but you know every user will have and every user and app will perhaps have built up a you know a, a database of information about those users uh that means it's not always easy to then decide to move to another platform unless you can take all that information that is about about the end user themselves and move to another move to another platform seamlessly so you know a, an example could be uh an example could be in uh music streaming for instance like if a user has built up a number of their own personal playlists uh they don't they don't necessarily want to walk away from those playlists just because they want to change the music app that they that they want to that that they want to use so data portability and you know is an example there where they would they would be able to take the the data the the playlist that they personally created and take those and move those other move those to a new platform if they want it that's that's an easy an easy example of how data portability is important from the user perspective on allowing them to freely choose and and switch and switch platforms at will rather than feeling like oh i've spent all this time building building a a relationship with this platform if i move i got to start all over again it lets them not have to start all over again in many respects there are other areas too where data portability can be important like just think think if you're a business that is, or a, a user that's using a particular cloud computing service if you can't take all of your all of the data that exists on that cloud computing service and port it over to a new one uh you know you're never going to be able to switch cloud computing because you'd have to rebuild that entire that entire history of the new platform so data portability is really about is really make is really about lowering switching costs for the users of any particular platform and giving them a lot more a lot more freedom and a lot and uh to to change when they want to so thank you so much sir for sharing your useful insights on the benefits of data portability now uh, we should talk about the guardian of competition law which is the federal trade commission in the us in india we have competition commission of india so we would like to know and assess the role of federal trade commission in tackling anti competitive conduct in the digital market space yeah so in the u and the us may be a little unique in the world in this respect we actually have two enforcement agencies charged with enforcing the antitrust laws what that's what we call the competition laws here uh they are the the federal trade commission as you noticed and the us department of justice and both of them for example right now have very active cases against the dominant digital platforms the the justice department is in trial right now with google uh on search issues and as you noted the ftc is uh has decided to sue amazon for anti-competitive conduct so those those uh those 
agencies kind of have parallel jurisdiction over enforcement of the antitrust laws here in the U.S. And at least in the tech space, they seem to have kind of had a, you know, a division of labor, so to speak, uh, over which companies or which areas that are tackling DOJ seems to have have taken on Apple and Google, whereas the FTC has focused more on uh, Facebook and Amazon. So that that's how things are going. They both enforce uh, with respect to unilateral conduct. Uh, it's Section 2 of the Sherman Act, uh, which is enforceable by the FTC under Section 5 of the FTC Act. But essentially, they are both enforcing Section 2 of the Sherman Act, which is what addresses the conduct of monopolists. Uh, in the U.S., uh, and both both have been very active over the last over the last few years, uh, and that pre- even predates the the change of uh, the change of party control over over the you know the White House and and those agencies. The, you know the, the DOJ under President Trump was taking action, and the DOJ under President Biden has even has even gone further. Uh, so. They, those agencies, that's what they, that's what they do. They've gotten more active. I think that follows a period, quite frankly, of inaction that persisted for a very long time, again, under both parties, regardless of who was in control of the White House and the executive branch. You know, you can think of what happened since the Microsoft case, which was a, a case brought in the late 1990s and finally settled in the early 2000s kind of was, I think, intended at the time to set the set the kind of limits of conduct of dominant digital platforms. It, to a large degree, went unenforced uh, after Microsoft until the last few years by, by these agencies. So you kind of had a couple of decades where they kind of dropped the ball, so to speak, on making sure that the, the next generation of dominant digital platforms were similarly uh, similarly constrained, and finally you see some function on that front. That said, the litigation process in the U.S., kind of like everywhere, actually, the, the litigation process takes many years. Often, uh, in digital in digital areas, it's it's the reality that often the firms that are being harmed by uh, by abusive behavior by the dominant digital platforms can't survive long enough to see the end of the end of uh, litigation, even when that litigation is successful. That's part of the push, I think, behind uh, the new legislation, you know, both both here and around the world is to provide a more certain and rapid path to let to resolution of disputes over what is and isn't allowable conduct by these firms. But they, you know, they both engage, both the DOJ and FTC engage in litigation to enforce those antitrust laws. They are active again in doing so. The outcome of the cases are far from certain, however, I'd say at this point, uh, and we will we will see what happens. But part of part of the reason I think for the push for new legislation is that 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 process is so lengthy and so uncertain that it doesn't it doesn't really allow people to make investments in in what they can do on those platforms because what they're what they're going to be allowed to do or whether their success will quickly be taken away by the dominant digital platforms remains uncertain until long after that 
those cases are filed. So it, it's it's not just a matter of them filing the cases, it's a matter of them litigating them and winning them. And that's kind of the phase we're in right now, I think, in the U.S., where the FTC and DOJ both have decided to finally, after 25 years, file cases again in this area. But the 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 outcome's far from certain, and it's a long road ahead as far as litigation process goes. Right, sir. Thank you for pointing out the developments in U.S. regarding FTC and DOJ. It is one of the most active jurisdictions in antitrust and we see a lot of front pager headlines about antitrust. Generally, we don't see competition law headlines on front page in every country, but in US, it uh, it is the case a lot of times. We have a lot of cases from uh, different states uh, within the US as well. Uh, but now there's a concern that a lot of competition lawyers also raise which is balancing competition versus innovation. So my next question is with respect to that, what are the lessons which US legislatures must keep in mind while implementing a bill like, for example, American Innovation and Choice Online Act, since there's also a possibility that targeting big tech or digital dominant firms, uh, digital or non-digital, both uh, targeting big tech make negatively impact innovation and market growth what do you think sir? yeah it's a great it's a great question and i think probably one of the more interesting ones because i do i think when you talk about uh lessons that that u.s lawmakers need to learn or lawmakers in india or the eu or the uk or many other places need need to learn is i think some to some degree the last 25 years they have taken the wrong lessons from from this kind of activity and have almost built a myth in the United States at least that the reason for success in Silicon Valley and maybe the reason why the center, you know, the center of the universe with respect to technology companies has been Silicon Valley over the last 25 years uh, is that the U.S. has taken a hands-off approach to led to uh, regulating technology companies and regulating competition. I think the opposite is actually true, and you, and we know that because if companies like Google, and it's interesting because you know Google's in trial right now with the Department of Justice, and interestingly, one of the pieces of evidence that came out was Google. Uh, essentially threatening Microsoft with antitrust action, but also heavily lobbying the U.S. Department of Justice uh, to regulate Microsoft's ability to integrate search into the into the, what was then the next version of Windows and the browser that was coming out in the early 2000s. It's it's companies like Google and Apple that actually depended on the way that Microsoft's dominant platform was regulated in the late 90s and early 2000s that allowed them to succeed. I mean, if you think back, think back to those to those times and, you know, you're you're both you're both very young. And so it was it was definitely before your time. But that, you know, back then, the only way people access the Internet was on their PCs and Microsoft had controlled 95 percent of those PCs with Windows. Now, what happened was what that meant for companies back then and for people interested in investing in new technologies is you always had to answer the question, what was Microsoft going to do to you or would they would they acquire you? Would they decide to compete with you and put you out of business? 
that was always the concern. And the, the fact that the U.S. government uh, acted and then the European Commission acted meant that companies like Google, like Apple, could build their businesses connecting with customers on PCs without, without worrying that Microsoft was going to take their business away. Or, uh, you know, an example today is, without Microsoft saying, that's a nice business you have there, we're gonna take 30% of your revenues for the privilege of connecting with customers on a Windows device. None of that happened because the government intervened with that dominant platform and enabled those businesses to thrive and grow and innovate and become successful. So imagine imagine a wor- the world, what the world might look like today if, uh, if a- Apple, for example, could have never uh, put iTunes on Windows and, and sold uh, iPods to that vast universe of potential customers that had PCs instead of Macs. I mean, the, the iPod business would have been very tiny and niche if it was only serving custom, you know, people that had Mac computers back in the early 2000s. And Apple was a almost failing business back then. They, they invented the iPod, but they took off because they they could freely serve the customers on Windows computers. And the rest, to some degree, is history. Now they're perhaps the most successful business in human history because they were able to make those investments and serve those customers without Microsoft getting in the way. And the same the same is true of Google. You can imagine what their search business might have looked like if when it was up and coming in the early 2000s, Microsoft had been, was, would have been allowed to or able to redirect customers to its own search engine or make it very difficult for users to find google.com or, or have told Google we would like 30% of your ad revenue that's generated on Windows computers. All of those things would have meant that Google just simply could not have grown and invested and gone to where they are today. So the the lessons, I, th- I think actually the bigger concern and the lesson that needs to be learned is if you don't address these situations, you will stand in the way of truly innovative companies like Google and Apple that, that are ready to go invest and build and b- build their businesses. Today, there are lots and lots of companies that are out there ready to build their businesses on mobile devices, but some will never make that investment because they can't uh, if Apple or Google are going to take 30% of their revenues. Uh, others might not get started at all. There was a there was a uh, an op-ed by the, the CEO of Spotify came out recently in the UK, where he's made the point that today, given the given the way that the markets have evolved on mobile devices, he probably wouldn't start Spotify again today. If, you know, with the with the current situation that exists on mobile devices and the way that the companies can constrain their conduct and can can extract revenues from them, he, he doubts he would he would start Spotify again today. He started it back in back when uh, mobile devices were brand new, and these companies were competing hard to attract developers. Today, they're now competing hard to extract from developers. And it's definitely having a negative impact on on competition, on innovation, and so I think if you think about lessons learned, I think I think to some degree people the, there's been a mythology that's built up. The wrong lessons have been learned, and the real risk is if these dominant platforms aren't constrained so that competition is fair on them, 
and that innovation can be free on them, that they run a real risk of, of thwarting innovation and, and uh, putting really putting just a couple of companies in control of what the technological future looks like. And that's, I don't think that's what, that's good for anybody. Uh, all of these companies, these laws need to be constructed in such a way that these companies remain free to innovate, remain free to compete in new markets if that's what they want to do. But that that competition is fair level and not in, not in a place where they're simply able to extract rents from, from uh, new innovative companies just because they stand between them and their customers. Uh, right, sir. Thank you so much for clearing our myths and giving such useful examples from the past. I hope that it will be very helpful to all our listeners. Now, uh, as it is rightly said that the stronger the network effects in a market, the greater the degree of market concentration and market power. So we would like to know what role do market effects play in the analysis of competition within digital markets and how should competition laws adapt to address these effects? Yeah, so, you know, network effects are really critical. They are kind of the source of why these markets tend to tip towards a single winner often uh, and why they are so hard to dislodge once they are successful. So the Microsoft case 25 years ago was about network effects and it was, you know, and here's here's the way to think about that. It was a, it's a platform where users would access their computers and after that, the applications on, on PCs would build to a particular platform in order to reach the most customers. So you think about it from the customer perspective, and it's these two-sided markets that have these network effects. If you think about it from the consumer perspective, you want to buy a device, a PC, or today a phone that has a lot of uh, attention from developers, a lot of uh, apps that are available to you because that's what makes the device interesting to use. So, you know, back in the day and with Microsoft, it meant that developers of applications on the PC, most of them, all of them would write for Windows because Windows was a very popular, uh, popular platform. Today, you can think of it in the same way with respect to the phones, which are kind of the new, the new platform, right? Is app developers and if you're if you're an app developer you have a you're a company that provides an interesting service through an app you have limited resources with which to build and maintain and update those apps you're going to write for the platforms that have the most customers because that's where you can that's where you your investment in building the app and maintaining the app and updating the app will pay off because you have enough customers so if you're if you're if you're a user, you want the platforms that have the most apps, and if you're an app developer, you want the platform that has the most customers. So once once that feedback loop builds, you've got you know you've got today literally two platforms of all of the attention of the app developers, and if you wanted to say compete as a new uh, a new phone platform, right? Say, say you are, say you were BlackBerry or Microsoft, and they, they, those were real competitors ten years ago with respect to mobile platforms. You need to go in order to sell phones. 
you need to have a lot of apps, a lot of interesting apps available to so that end users will want to buy your phone. They're not particularly interested in buying an iPhone or a Samsung Galaxy because they're, you know, they they really like the keypad on how you dial or things like that, right? It's because you have hundreds and thousands and millions of apps available to you that make make your phone interesting to use. If you're a if you wanted to launch a new competitive platform for phones, you've got to go get literally hundreds of thousands of app developers to spend the time and resources to build their apps to work on your platform. That's a hard that's a difficult task because those app developers need to see a return on the investment they're making in building those apps and unless you have already a lot of users they're not interested in making that investment and if you don't have and if so if you don't have the users you can't get the app developers and if you don't have the app developers you can't get the users so it's that it's that kind of network effect that makes that a leads to the fact that i think you know there's kind of a winner take all or a couple of winners take all uh dynamic that plays out on these digital platforms and then b it makes it really really hard even for the most uh the most resource rich companies in the world to actually go compete those kind of network effects play out not just in operating system platforms like PCs or phones they also play out in other areas too like like search for example where you know building a great search engine depends on having having a lot of customers using your search engine so that you can learn from their clicks and learn from what they do and and that's a positive feedback network effect makes it hard to build a competing search engine if you if you don't have access to all of that data you can't build a great search engine and if you can't build a great search engine you can't get users to use it and then you can't get the data so it's it's this it's either a positive feedback loop or for new competitors it's a chicken and egg problem that uh is very difficult to solve thank you so much sir for explaining to us in a very lucid manner and with a lot of examples i'm glad you quoted blackberry blackberry was my first phone when i was i think 12 years old and yeah. it, it was the last uh, dying period of blackberry as you said that it was a competition to microsoft some some years back 10 years 12 yeah. years but not now but yes we do remember fondly and network effects have ill effects in, and we understand it from a competition law point of view especially in digital markets so when we talk about digital markets now there's a, a digital plus i would say as ai is incoming and uh, we recently saw global ai safety summit in uk and a lot of comments by uh, also biden's executive order on ai which also i think comments on competition and uh, and innovation balancing so uh, would like i uh, would like you to comment on the potential impact on of emerging technologies such as artificial intelligence blockchain on competition laws in the digital space sir yeah it's a, it's, a, it's an excellent question i, I i'm not going to say i know all of the answers i'm not sure i'm not sure everyone anyone knows quite the answers of of how this will play out uh play out in the future but it's clear that both of these technologies and AI in particular uh depends on a treasure trove of data in order to 
improve and develop and can and grow. So it's about having that that access to data. So the same kind of the same kind of network effects that we just talked about, I think, may play an even bigger role when it comes to things like AI. I could be wrong about that. Maybe someone someone more expert in it will tell me otherwise. But if an AI an AI system that doesn't have access to a lot of data, you know, can't learn. It's like a you know, it's, if it's if you compare it to a human brain, a human brain that has access to massive libraries can learn everything. A human brain that is that is uh, you know prevented from accessing all of the all of that you know rich information and libraries won't learn much at all and may not ever may not ever develop very much. So I mean I think you know it's it's useful to think about AI in the same way. So then the question is who has control of all of the data? How is how is access to that data being constrained or opened up? And what does that mean for our future? Will will the future of AI and its potential be, you know, constricted by the interests of a few large corporations that happen to have those treasure troves of data or access to very specific databases that are important to that kind of learning or particular functions that AI, that AI might provide? Or will the potential of AI be uh, be much more open, uh, and, and I think access to data and some of those feedback loops, feedback loops will will come into play a lot. So a lot of a lot of the things that we're talking about with respect to digital platforms, I think the concepts may be applicable in the future to things like artificial intelligence and blockchain, uh, to the extent those are dependent on on similar feedback loops. So. At, a lot of that, I think a lot of that remains to be seen, but it's definitely caught the attention, obviously, of, of uh, governments and regulators around the world. And people are wondering what the best way to, what the best way to, to uh, regulate or constrict those, constrict that is going forward. I, I'm not gonna claim to have the answers to any of that, but I do think that ensuring that whatever emerges from technologies like AI and blockchain don't end up being controlled by just a couple of large corporations and that those, the potential of those technologies are, is kind of open to the world so that the you know, innovators, innovators anywhere in the world can, can take advantage of that and, and build on that rather than, rather than allowing them to be constrained to just a couple of corporations that happen to control uh, either databases or platforms right now that can, can that can place a constraint on that. So, I agree with you completely, sir. And thank you for addressing this issue in a very succinct manner. Uh, the existing Competition Act 2002 in India also does not explicitly address AI, and thus it creates new policy changes for us. And we also need to incorporate AI-specific provisions within competition laws to effectively regulate the impact of AI on competition and ensure a level playing field in the evolving technology landscape. Now, um, we would also like to hear your views on another hot topic that is data protection. So we would like to know that how do data protection and competition law intersect and what are the potential conflicts or synergies between these two regulatory frameworks in the digital sphere? 
it's a great question and i'm i'm old enough to i think have lived through the, some of the evolution on all of this you know i back in my earlier days at microsoft i would say data protection and privacy were barely concerns they they certainly were not things that people considered competitive advantages or disadvantages that has that has changed a lot in the last decade and a half i think i think as some of the more uh, i would say egregious violations of privacy have have emerged and i would i would say that started uh, with the revelations that edward snowden brought to light here that kind of changed the way people thought about data privacy and protection and that sort of thing it's led to an evolution i think in people people viewing privacy as a competitive advantage or disadvantage uh, when it when it comes to building their technologies and interesting and and making sure that customers are interested in it that said it's also become so it's 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 interesting from that perspective it's it's probably a little interesting given the kind of privacy and public safety aspect of everything that that companies need to keep in mind and I'll go back to old fashioned competition law that they shouldn't be they shouldn't be colluding on how much or how little they act to protect uh protect data or user privacy but that's a um that's a that's an aspect of competition that they shouldn't be you know getting in a room and agreeing on just as they shouldn't be agreeing on other features of their their uh competitive applications or or prices or or anything else that they ought not to agree on so it's in the old fashioned way that's that's kind of how that works but i the other thing i think we've seen emerge is the use of the use of privacy as a competitive uh as a, I'd say as a competitive weapon to some degree I mean if you think about data and how it has evolved the way that the internet now monetizes itself is through advertising right and that and the that advertising is often targeted to users and to users interests and to users uh current view of the world and using using data that that companies have collected now to some degree i think we've seen emerge in the last few years the practice where companies that have a have control over a large trove of interesting data that would that that allow people to effectively monetize their services or content on the internet have i would say in some some cases cynically used that privacy excuse as a way to make sure that they don't face competition when it comes to advertising and uh and the ability to monetize websites so it's they are they are important they are interrelated and i think i think at this point uh regulators need to be conscious of the fact that they don't fall fall into the trap of allowing dominant uh dominant firms with respect to data or advertising use privacy as a means to prevent competition going forward and i think i think there's a path through that that a respects people's desire desire for privacy and control of their data but b doesn't end up making sure that one or two companies control the ability to monetize uh monetize content or services on the internet as as you know the it's it, it's been an interesting evolution to watch over the last 3 decades really of 
monetization of technology move from a royalty-based, you know, you used to buy discs of Windows to load onto your computer and making sure that, you know, those discs didn't get pirated was kind of the key role of, of, uh, of lawyers and, and everyone else. Data privacy meant back then making sure that source code didn't leak out of the door, right? And that, that has evolved as things have moved more to a subscription basis or to an ad-based basis where if you're advertising-based, you probably you don't really care if anyone takes your content because as long as, as long as they have to look at an ad next to it, that's the way you're monetizing the content. So it's, uh, it's the way of making sure that as the way people monetize their technologies and innovations and content on the internet has moved to advertising and to subscription-based models, that the, that the regulators don't fall into a trap of letting them, I would say, cynically use privacy as a shield to competition. Great answer, sir. I think that this answer should echo in the offices of AI companies, uh, data-oriented companies, and the companies who, who target killer acquisitions. I would say that this is a great answer to, and an answer which is in, in lines with the objectives of competition law. It's perfect alignment. And as we end this podcast, we are very happy to host you. You have been very... Uh, uh, true to yourself while expressing yourself uh, as a competition lawyer and with your vast experience we have learned a lot and we'll uh, also research on this subject on these subjects as like topics like AI or data or blockchain these are so new not only to uh, regulators but also to lawyers and uh, uh, students who are working on it who are researching on it and who will be who will be willing to fi- willing and wishing to find answers to competition law perspective. Uh, 